The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Good morning, friends. My name is Gareth. I'm one of the elder candidates here at Life Centre Church at North Lakes. Um, And it is so wonderful to have you here this morning joining us online. Uh, Today we are continuing our series on encounters with Jesus by jumping right into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most comprehensive teaching on what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Which is to say, what life looks like living in light of the gospel. Which, in the language of Jesus, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel is the good news of our good king who created this world, made it to be good, but humans who were given the task of stewarding this creation, caring for it, living in harmony with it, we went our own way, wanting to not obey the rules of life and love and flourishing that had been provided by this good king, but instead, as stewards, we decided we wanted to be the rulers, the owners, ourselves. Through that, brokenness, hurt, loneliness, pain, death and decay entered the world through that disobedience. Christians use the word sin for when we deviate from God's good plan, God's good design for our lives and follow our own path. And it is this sin which opened the cracks that we now experience throughout all of creation. God is not content to just leave the broken or wipe the board clean and start again, but instead entered into his own creation, proclaiming the good news. The good news that this world will not always be as it is. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what is this kingdom? John Piper so helpfully says in Desiring God that this kingdom is God's reign. A kingdom has a place, a kingdom has a people. But when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we are talking about God's rule. God sitting on his throne. And that is what's at hand. That is what's imminent. And repent. Stop. Change. Acknowledge that you have been following your own path. Return to your God, your king, your creator, and live your lives in light of his beautiful plan with him at the helm. The response to this message can be complex and intimidating. But the Christian life is one that is spent in acknowledgement of our need for Jesus, and then it does two things. We listen and we obey. We hear the words of our Lord, our King, our Teacher, and then we apprentice under Him because He knows how our lives should be lived. He designed us. And this is my hope, this is my prayer of what today's passage would reveal to us. I believe that this passage is an opportunity for us, an invitation for us to listen and then obey. To hear the teaching of the most influential person who ever lived and then respond. And our focus today will be on Matthew 7, 12. But to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of a run up, we'll go through verses 9, 10 and 11 and go into it that way. So either... While you're sitting in your living rooms, open up or turn on your Bibles. The text will also be up on the screen. And let's read the words of Jesus. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So... In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Friends, let's just read that last line of scripture together. So, 
in everything. Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And this verse will be our focus for today. I'm actually so excited that we get to do this Encounters of Jesus series. Um, I think our culture believes that they know what Jesus said, and I really believe that they don't. But honestly, so many of us who are watching this video today, who are sitting in our living rooms, who go to church, I think that we know what Jesus meant by what he said, but I'd argue that we often don't. We often don't reflect on how radical, on how transformative the words of Jesus are. So I believe that that's a great opportunity for us to stop, to pause, to pray, and let the Spirit do what he will. So pray with me. Father, Help us read and hear these familiar words as if they were new. Let us put aside whatever misconceptions that we may have about who Jesus is. And Holy Spirit, may you then open our eyes to see you anew. May you sharpen our minds to hear what you would have us to hear. May you open our hearts so that we might receive it. And may you open our lives so that we may be changed. Amen. There's this great story in the first century BC of two rabbis. The first is this rabbi Shammai, who was, you know, he'd have his shirt buttoned all the way to the top. He was a bit of a stickler for the rules, a bit legalistic, really serious. And then there was this other rabbi, Hillel, who was, you know, he was probably from Melbourne. He had like a sleeve tattoo, probably had long hair like Shane, you know, had drank espresso, but only from, you know, single origin beans, you know, probably smoked on the weekends. Super cool, chilled guy. So it was Rabbi Shammai. Buttoned all the way to the top, Rabbi Hillel, probably from Melbourne. Um, and there's this story of this Gentile, of this non-believer, coming to Rabbi Shammai, the strict guy, straighty 180, um, and saying, Rabbi Shammai, if you can recount the whole Torah while standing on one leg, then I'll repent and join your religion. Rabbi Shammai was so offended that he ended up chasing the Gentile out and in some stories chased him out, hitting him with a stick. That Gentile then went off and saw Rabbi Hillel, the cool guy from Melbourne, sleeve tats, probably wearing a singlet, and said, Rabbi, if you can recount the whole Torah, and by the Torah, that means the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, something that they would have, as rabbis, had learnt and memorised, uh, would have taken hours. Rabbi, if you can recount the whole Torah while standing on one leg, I will convert. Rabbi Hillel looked at him and said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbour. That is the whole Torah, the rest is commentary. That sounds suspiciously familiar to the passage we're looking at today. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That was a century or so, at least, before Jesus. So, like, was Jesus plagiarist? Was he just riffing off this cool rabbi from the past? And lots of people would say that Jesus was not unique in saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That the golden rule as it's often called, is not an idea that's unique to Christianity. So I would love for us today to dig into this text and find out, was Jesus just saying, what is hateful to you, do not do to another? That is the whole Torah, the rest is commentary. So let's have a look at that text. So, in everything. 
so. This word so is the word soon. It's also rendered in other translations as therefore. It's indicating that what we have here in this text, in this little verse, is a conclusion to an argument. It asks us to look backwards to the text that has come before it. And so let's have a quick read of the few verses that have read, led up to this statement. So verses 9, 10, and 11. Which of you, if your son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? All of this starts with God's fatherly loving kindness towards you, towards his children. And we've been told many times, if you've spent any time in church, because you have been loved, you can now love. This is the profound ability that we have been given from the gospel. We don't love and we don't do good so that we get love and get goodness, but we love because we have been completely, profoundly and transformatively loved by Jesus. But I think that what this text is saying here is a bit more than that. As a Christian, as someone who's been adopted into God's family, you are free to step out in confidence and faith because you know your needs are completely provided for. You have a security that is grounded in God's character and in your identity as an adopted daughter or son. And I think that this point ends up being key as to how counterculture and counterintuitive this saying of Jesus actually is. But we'll come back to it. We've gone so in everything, which surprisingly means everything. And that's indicating that this saying of Jesus is meant to be a general rule of life. In everything due to others. And it's interesting that at this point Jesus doesn't use the word Adelphoi which would have often have been used to describe others you might want to care for. Your siblings, those in your group, your church, your friends, family, tribe. But he instead uses the word anthropoi, the root of the word anthropology, the study of humanity. He used a word which encompassed all people. Kylam a couple of weeks ago spoke from Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus, being asked who is my neighbour, uses this story of a Samaritan who is an outsider who sacrificially loved and cared for a Hebrew, who was lying on the road when others had been passed by, who should have cared for him. He used this as an illustration of what it means to be a neighbour. Who is your neighbour? Everyone. Anthropoi, humanity. That was this beautiful illustration. So, in everything, do to others, anthropoi, everyone, your neighbour, what you would have them do to you. Let's say this in a few different ways. I think a couple of translations might be helpful. So in the New Living, um, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And in the NIV, which we're reading from today, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Or actually find the paraphrase in the message helpful. Here is a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and the prophets and this is what you get. <laughs> Put yourself in the other person's shoe, think of what they need and grab the initiative and do it for them. But that last line afterwards is a, can be a little bit confusing because this sums up the law and the prophets. Add up God's law and prophets and this is what you get. What does that mean? 
the law and the prophets. Jesus, he started the Sermon on the Mount with that killer intro, super familiar, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he starts this Bible study on the Old Testament. He actually goes through 14 different teachings, all starting with, you have heard it said. The listeners of that day would have been familiar with that phrase, you have heard it said. It's indicating that what has been said is from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus is effectively doing this big Bible study, which builds up to this moment in verse 12. And as a quick aside, Jesus, as he was doing this teaching and throughout his whole life, he had this super high view of the Bible. He grounds all of his teachings, his life's work, his purpose and meaning in the scriptures. And the only bit of the Bible that he had at the time was the Old Testament. And that's the bit of the Bible that we normally take issue with. I just... Just a thought. And so how is it significant that this is the summary of the law and the prophets? The summary of the law and the prophets is all about interpersonal relationship. And that means that there is an impossible to separate link between how you relate to God and his law and how you relate to others. This is life in the kingdom. This is his summary of the Beatitudes. This is his summary of the Bible in some senses, that Jesus makes two clear summaries of his teachings. The first is this one, and the second we see later in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, when he is asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is Deuteronomy 6. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. These are commands. And that second one, if you were just going to give someone a command, that would be that. But the other, what we're looking at today, is a truism, an aphorism or a catchphrase. If Jesus was going to give a couple of clear rules that you would try to follow, the two commands, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. But if he was going to go to try to go viral on Twitter, he'd probably be using the one we're talking about today. And this was actually really common in Jesus' day for rabbis to try and summarize the law and the prophets. That's what Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel were doing. And that was pretty common. And this then was apparently called the golden rule in the years that followed because this emperor apparently, Alexander Severus, great name, adopted the rule as his motto, displayed it on public buildings and had it written on his bedroom in gold print, apparently, as the story goes. But ethical theorists have three rules which are meant to indicate different levels of ethical maturity, and they include the golden rule in that. This isn't necessarily my view or the view of the church, but I think it can be a helpful illustration and a helpful framework which we can sometimes see our behavior through. The first is the wooden rule. Eye for an eye. What you do to me, I do to you. I like your hat, I like your scarf. You give me a peach, I give you an apple. Hey, nice sermon. Hey, nice um, listening to my sermon. Um, you push me, I trip you over. I cut you off, you speed past me. You speed past me, I drive into your car. Um, this is the first level of ethical maturity. And as you can see, this isn't a great foundation but it's exactly what we see children do and adults who are behaving like children do. And sadly, many of us actually default back to this rule of life. When we are hurt, when we are afraid, when we are insecure, hurt people, hurt people. 
There is truth to that turn of phrase. The second is then the silver rule. And I'd argue that that's actually what most of us think the golden rule is. And that's exactly what Rabbi Hillel said. What, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That which is hateful to you, don't do to your fellow. Because this is possible to achieve through inaction. You just avoid inflicting suffering on your fellow human. It's less about doing good and just not making other people's lives worse. And I've been thinking about it, and perhaps using the silver rule, you actually never show love to someone. Perhaps you only achieve a kind of passive respect. And this is actually at the heart of many Confucian teachings, the ethical teachings which influence much of the Eastern world. And while many might say that the golden rule's origins are much older than Jesus, Confucius was kicking that around before Jesus, it was almost always framed in the negative. Don't do what is harmful. Avoid what hurts. Rarely, if ever, is it framed in a positive way. And it has never been framed before Jesus, as far as we know, in such a radical way. And in the context of Jesus' other teachings, which cross these cultural, ethnic, social, and gender divides. Of loving your neighbour. Considering the other. And seeing that your neighbour includes those who strike your cheek, and then you turn the other. Your enemy who persecutes you. The Roman who crucifies you. That was new. C.S. Lewis has this beautiful line, love is not the affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. This golden rule has been called the Everest of ethical teachings, but it is not without controversy. And Lots of people have objections to it, and I'd like to quickly address three things. One, some common objections to the golden rule. Two, then clarify why it's so radical, because sometimes it doesn't feel like it is. And then three, emphasize the fact that this only makes sense, that this rule only makes sense if it's grounded in the security that comes from God as our Father. The primary pitfall that people fall into is taking it too simply and too literally. Because what if I didn't actually want good things for myself? Should I then do terrible things to others if I feel that that's what I deserve? What if I'm a massive extrovert and you're an introvert? Should I afflict you with my persistent company because that's exactly what I would want? This objection fails to account for the fact that most people would desire for their preferences and their desires to be taken into account. And that to treat people the way you want to be treated is to know that you would want to be treated respectfully and with your preferences and your hopes being considered. There's also another criticism that this type of behaviour will ultimately be a picture and exemplify a passive or weak person. Someone who will just roll over as they do to others as they would have them do to you. But I actually don't think that this is what history shows us. When we exemplify a moral high road so as to love another, that doesn't show weakness or passivity. It normally communicates a strong, positive pose. When you stand upright and refuse to bend to the wooden rule, it actually uplifts and dignifies that person rather than making them more oppressed. There are, however, some genuine pitfalls. You might yourself desire trust, and so you trust unworthy people. And then that starts to get a little more complicated. But I think 
In short, to take it too simply is to do Jesus a disservice. So what do we do? I believe we pray for wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. And despite this qualifier, this teaching is incredibly radical. For Jesus, loving isn't passive, loving is doing. Loving is actively seeking the good of another, even if it comes at a cost. At LCC, we have spoken in the past about gospel inconvenience. Going out of your way to stop, to consider, and then, as crazy as this next point will be, to actually do something. To love, to serve, and to seek the good for another. To be inconvenienced by the gospel we claim to hold. In the modern Protestant church, we are terrified of being perceived as legalistic. But I want you to know that for Jesus, loving is doing. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we desire three things, really, when it all comes down to it. To be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what he did. This requires activity. The kind of activity which suggests that, as a general rule of life, in everything... Treat others with the respect, dignity, kindness, and love that you desire. And who are those others? Everyone. Your neighbour. And that is Jesus' summary of interpersonal relationships in the kingdom of God. That is radical. And that is costly. Because what is it that we want? What is it that we would have them do unto us? I think we actually know but it's really, really hard because it requires two things. One, it requires for you to take on the perspective of the person you are trying to love and know that they are a person with many of the same needs, loves, desires, fears and insecurities as you. And the second is to see them as God sees them. Made in his image. And then what do we do? We need to engage in small, creative acts of love where you genuinely desire the ultimate good of that person. So in your workplace, maybe say hello to someone you normally wouldn't. Let them know that they've been seen. Maybe be the person who volunteers for the worst job. All of you know in your context exactly what that is. (laughs) Maybe bake cookies. Because that's what, that's what Haley did earlier this week. And from what I was told, they were a hit. None came home. <laughs> Maybe shout someone for a coffee if you're going for a run. Or in hospitality, invite people into your homes. But maybe not just for dinner, but as costly as it may be. Not for a night, but for a relationship, for a friendship, for something ongoing. Maybe in forgiveness and reconciliation, consider those you have hurt have hurt you and those of you who have been hurt by be the one to take the courageous and scary first step and then maybe in other small acts of kindness extend offers to those who could be considered less desirable risk having an awkward coffee risk having just an awkward conversation at church or maybe right now an awkward conversation with the person who's sitting next to you on the couch <laughs> have these small creative, intentional acts of love where you see that person as your neighbour. As we're starting to conclude, I really want to say that as simple as this text has been, it's been really convicting to me. 
because I wish that I could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Sometimes when you're a preacher, you hop up and you share a message of something where it's like, actually, I've had massive wins in this area and I want to testify to you the goodness and the graciousness of God. Follow me as I follow Christ. But I can't. And so I think perhaps where some of you who might be sitting there today might also be reflecting and realizing perhaps that this is something that you struggle to do, to lift your head up out of the sand of your own problems and your own circumstances and seek the good of others. Ask for help. There's a great word for that in the New Testament. It's Hosanna. And Hillsong might have written an absolute banger by that name. Asking for help only makes sense if we have a guarantee that our needs will be provided for by a father who loves us. It doesn't matter if it's costly. The father will pay the bills. He's a good father. He will not give you a stone if you ask for bread. He will provide for your needs and pray for wisdom as to when to do it. But then actually do it. I really want to challenge you, LCC. Perhaps try to, in this following week, take three moments where you just kind of check yourself and do one to another as you would have them do to you. Just three moments. The week is long. And don't require an acceptance of your love. If you do, consider that you might not actually be grounding that interaction in a security that comes from being a daughter or a son of a good father. And then do it together. In a marriage, it can be exhausting if only one person is aiming for the ultimate good of the other. And it is this beautiful picture of mutual submission when both parties lay their lives down for one another. LCC, it is my earnest hope and prayer that we can be a community that is marked by this kind of radical love for one another. And so I pray that we can ground it in what Jesus grounded it in. And that we can see practically the outworking of God's love for us. Jesus made sure we would be provided for by his death and his resurrection for us so that we might be adopted into that family, which guarantees that blessing. I pray this week and for the rest of your life that Jesus's summary of the law and the prophets might become a guiding thought, a little earworm, an idea you just can't shake, that it become a lens through which you see every interaction as you now live in the light of God's kingdom, in light of God's good gospel. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.